hundreds of millions of years ago, there were 4,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide. Nature brought it down to 280 parts. When people say nature-based solutions can't fix it, holy smokes, it did fix it. It's what allowed us to live here and to become a present on this planet. And we're just now working with nature to help us get back to that. We've got to stop emitting, but golly, we can draw it down when we start to farm differently. And we really bring this no-tillage and this multi-species cover back into the system. You know, we can fix this damage we've done, but it'll take a commitment by all of us and a, and a respect for nature and how we can support that living system. And we're learning how more and more every day. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. We talk about regenerative agriculture. We talk about resilient systems. But I guarantee you, we haven't talked about it quite in the way that we're going to talk about today. I have a guest returning. It's Tim LaSalle. And Tim is with the Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems. Tim, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Roger, thank you very much. Good to be with you again. Yeah, I know. I like that again part because you've been popular when I've had you on before. We've had great conversations. And, and you know, since some of those earlier conversations, when I think you were one of the first people that were mentioning regeneration and regenerative agriculture, Everybody is now. You know, I get pitched all the time to have guests on my podcast, and and I'm I'm happy that they contact me, and they know I've got people that are listening that are consumers, and they're politicians, and they're farmers, and just people that care about the food system. Uh, oftentimes, the word um, regenerative is showing up nearly as much as the word sustainable used to show up. And uh, resiliency and some of those things, and they end up becoming words that you, you you worry at first. It's just like everybody's dropping them in all over the place. It's kind of kind of like if there was a, a new manual on on the, the way to be able to write, um, you should have an approved list of adjectives and adverbs, and it should include a certain number of regenerative or sustainable references. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> so stop me if I'm acting like I'm getting cynical because I don't mean to. I mean, it just seems to me like they're all pointing in the right direction. I don't. I don't deny that, and I don't even mind the fact that a lot of people figured out the market wants to see it as well, as long as they do what they say they're going to do. But you're different. You've been doing it for a while, and you've been looking at these things. And in this process, too, specifically, I want to talk about. You've got a a project down where the action is, which everybody around maybe around the world, but around the country, have heard of the issues with the Colorado River and along the Colorado River. And you've got a project that's along the Colorado River in you know, the southern part of California that has, and what happens there is important. And that's where I'm going to stop. That's enough of an introduction. Right. Uh, you're in an area near Blythe, California. Um, what are you doing there? 
Roger, I'd be delighted to share that with you. But let me just comment on in your intro here, because I think it's it's worthy of some thought. And that is, is that, yeah, the regenerative word has come to prominence now. It's critical and it's important and it has to happen. And the reason I ended up with that, uh, you know, 15 years ago, or 12 years ago, particularly when we began talking to Dr. Cindy Daly and I at uh, Cal State Chico, what can we do and developing that center up there, which we did within this last decade, to actually do the hard research so that the numbers were clear and that we know what we're talking about from a scientific perspective. We both understood that um, organic wasn't enough, conventional wasn't enough. And if you think of the term sustainability, it had outlived, it sort of became like a, this historical anomaly or uh, an, uh, an iconic thing that we thought's where we needed to head. But when the UN informed us we had 55 years of topsoil left, there's no such thing as sustainability. We actually have to rebuild. We have to re-support nature and recreate what she built for us to live off of from the standpoint of producing food. And we can. That's where regeneration comes into play. And so there are two primary disturbances of the soil that degenerated. One is tillage and the other are chemicals. And so the no-till people are working on the tillage question pretty hard and doing really phenomenal and positive work. And the organic people have been working in the arena of the chemicals, getting the chemicals out of the system. And we needed, we needed to work both ends because what we are talking about is a biological basis for a healthy functioning soil. And the biology is disturbed by tillage dramatically. This is where organic soils can be just almost as dead as conventional soils. And chemicals destroy or, or reduce the capacity of that biology to function well. So you don't have to eliminate all chemicals. You don't have to eliminate absolutely all tillage. But you have to get rid of some of the really significant ones that repress. And what we're showing, which is crucial is the economics are better. You can actually return to the farmer more money because you can reduce the amount of horsepower, reduce the amount of tractor time, reduce the amount of compaction in the tillage realm, and you can reduce the amount of output of where a farmer has to pay for inputs, fertilizers, chemicals, et cetera, because everything becomes healthier. And this soil biome, this biological miracle with the fungi and the bacteria and the protozoa and the nematodes all start to work together to create the fertility cycling for the crop itself. And we're getting data out of Arizona and now data out of Blythe that's supporting this dramatically. Why are we in Blythe? Uh, that's a long way from Chico. It's it's yeah. 11 hour drive. Um, but in essence, we have um, the Metropolitan Water District that serves 19 million people in Southern California, and a farmer, a, a pair of farmers there that Dale Tyson is the lead that we've been working with that has been so open to allowing us to do trials in his farm, comparing fallow-based systems that are intent on saving water for the urban consumer, but is destroying the soil by the nature of how we fallow. If we disc and keep a live root out of the ground, we think we're saving water because there are no plants are using it. But we're finding that in that fallow system, 
it's the soil in a, like a hundred degree day in Blythe, the soil will be 120 degrees, meaning it's heating the whole community to have this bare fallow. When we see bare soils, we're heating the planet. We're losing carbon to the atmosphere. And nearly one quarter of their legacy carbon in the atmosphere comes from soil, not just fossil fuels. So we're losing that when we disc, when we plow, and when we leave bare ground. So wow. can we change that? And that's what we went into ask that question by going into no-till environments and using multi-species cover crops. And Roger, the reason I emphasize multi-species is that way nature works is complex and needs complexity. So we're talking about grasses and legumes and forbs, six, eight, ten species planted as a cover crop. What this provides to nature is different root architectures. In other words, the structure of the root, the depths of the roots, and different root exudates, in other words, foods that feed the life of the soil, feeding this biology, these fungal organisms, the bacteria, and then the protozoa eating the bacteria and releasing nitrogen then to the plant. The response is phenomenal. As a matter of fact, faster than we would have ever predicted. Uh, one of the things the farmer, uh, Dale, had sent us were pictures early on where he said in 30 years he had not seen an earthworm in his fields. Well, that's a common know, comment Yeah, all over the country. I hear that. And now he cannot put a spade in his ground and not come up with an earthworm. You almost say, where did they come from? Yeah. But they're all through where there is life above the soil and then organic matter that drops down to feed them and they're making the air spaces in the soil the fungal communities are creating air spaces by gluing soil particles together the soil is becoming less compacted less dense it's able to percolate water much more rapidly so you're going to evaporate less water and it'll go down deeper faster it's able therefore to get air and you know air is 78 percent nitrogen down in the soil for organisms to utilize. And so here we go, actually restoring what nature knew always how to do. You know, this issue of climate change, um, hundreds of millions of years ago, there were 4,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide. It brought it down, nature brought it down to 280 parts. When people say nature-based solutions can't fix it, holy smokes, it did fix it. It's what allowed us to live here and to become a present on this planet. And we're just now working with nature to help us get back to that. We've got to stop emitting, but golly, we can draw it down when we start to farm differently. And we really bring this no-tillage and this multi-species cover back into the system and then you can come in and plant your cash crop. So what happens with a single monoculture cash crop is it starts to disturb that breadth and health of the biome, but it's soon restored the next winter when you put the cover crop back in. It comes back and flourishes. And so what we're seeing in these farming systems is rates of carbon accrual at 10 times the rate of what literature says farming can possibly do. Well, it's because before scientists have not been studying healthy, functional soil biomes. And nature will get to that very rapidly when she is supported with what she needs 
and what the functional soil biomes, it jumps in carbon accrual, which means health of the soil, fertility, water holding capacity, water percolation capacity. We're also seeing it improves nutrient density of the food because th that fungi will reach out maybe a thousand far, uh, length farther than what the root can do and find a micronutrient like boron that the plant has signaled it needs and will bring it to the plant. Let me stop you just a second, because this, sure. this is fantastic. And you're saying several things that I think that I've got some listeners, their heads spinning, because this is this is a lot. And and I think that it's radically different in some ways. I mean, this isn't just a, another you're obviously not in the greenwashing business or anything. I mean, this is this is different. Let me say the obvious. Um, the Earth got along just fine without us. And and then you could also say the Earth itself was probably getting along just fine before agriculture. But then we have to uh, account for what we've done in the last 10,000 years. But even more when you start talking, like that guy that was saying it was 30 years since he's seen earthworms, there seemed to be almost like a turning point. You started hearing a lot more of that in the 70s or 80s. Did we finally reach a tipping point that these these systems to maximize our, our production using tillage and using chemicals and everything, that it reached a, a tipping point that people committed to expanding their agriculture returns and increasing their yields and so forth happened in enough different places that uh, that it was just kind of like popping up all over the place facing the kind of issue you just described? It might be, and and that maybe is through a lens here on, on our particular continent in North America, maybe so. But what's also true, we always think in terms of the Dust Bowl and the tillage and how we mm -hmm. just blew soil. Yeah, it's true. Sort of Washington, D.C., the day they voted on passing the whole Soil Conservation Act, you know, as the dust pours into town. So what a lobbyist, that cloud of dust to come in and say, here I am, you know, fix me. Yep. But, you know, we've been eroding soil, as you mentioned, for 10,000 years just by plowing. And um, as David Montgomery in his book, Erosion or Dirt, um, the Erosion of Civilization, he reminds us that uh, we've lost the amount of topsoil equivalent as the continents of India and China or the countries of India and China combined already. And we continue to lose it at a similar rate. We degrade it or lose it. The other thing is, is as this farmer would tell you in 30 years not seeing the earthworms, he's also had to increase his fertilizer usage without great results. Because as we're, what I think is missed, fertilizer salesmen probably love the idea of, yeah, you need more, you need more. But if we continue to lose soil carbon, its efficacy rate drops. And that's where a lot of the soils where the whole Bill Gates and Agra efforts in Africa will never work for a green revolution. Those soils, and I've worked in them for four years over on that continent, are tired and poor and lack carbon. And I had people there saying, Tim, tell these guys, you know, without getting organic matter back in the soil, the fertilizer will never work. Well, we just don't need the fertilizers to start with. We need the carbon. That's the fertilizer that will get the life of the soil functioning again. Um, Christine Jones out of uh, Australia says, if you get your biology functioning, you likely won't need fertilizers. But if you find five pounds of nitrogen per acre stimulates that organism a little bit, then use it. Well, five pounds is, that's almost organic. I mean, that's nothing. 
So, you know, that's that's the kind of idea we should be searching for and moving towards just to save the farmer money, let alone the climate issues that the fertilization and the tillage are causing the planet. Let me jump in here now. Um, you've you've mentioned that you've done some work in Africa, too. And even though you're focused in Blythe down around the Colorado River on this particular project, I assume that that you've discovered that this could you could probably drop down on similar projects pretty much all over the world. Is that is that fair to say or am I going too far? Without question. So Dr. Daly at Chico and uh, her team and myself, we have a number of projects going on in California from far north to south and in Arizona. We anticipate trying to move this project with our flux towers, which we could talk about, but into Midwest and the East as well. That's our ambition because we know how important this data is to convince policymakers both here in the U.S. and U.N. that agriculture holds such a potential to fix the climate problem and it's being overlooked primarily. Uh, and it's so important for food security and water issues, et cetera. It's so, so deeply important. So we've got to get the hard data to be able to convince 10,000 years of thinking in the wrong direction. But my wife and I were just in Guatemala for the last couple of weeks and a lot of times with the smallholder farmers. And it's the same idea. And they're moving into some of these regenerative principles. And we can help them move faster with particularly reducing tillage and improving the diversity of their covers or their inter interspecies plantings. You know, historically, the indigenous populations down there planted corn, which is a grass, planted beans, which is legume, and planted pumpkins, which is a forb. And I think I mentioned in the multi-species, we need those three groupings. So there was some wisdom there. What we're seeing is if you can increase that to a few species of grass, a few species of legumes, and a few species of forbs, so you have maybe nine different species growing, the response is even greater. And yes, it'll work in Africa. I continue to work with Kofi Boa out of Ghana, and Howard Buffett has funded his work uh, for uh, the Ghana Center for No-Till Farming, and Kofi has been tracking just as we stand communication, just as we have, about the significance of the multi-species and the biology. And he's seen tremendous results. As a matter of fact, we're in dialogue now with the Liberian government to perhaps go in and convert the whole country into this kind of a regenerative training approach, experimental farm to teach and train. And the Minister of Ag is so excited, and that president has become excited too, wanting the rice to go into this methodology to be able to give more nutrient-dense food in a, not only a climate, a lot of chemical companies like to use the word climate smart, in actually a climate mitigating approach where we can actually draw down carbon at huge levels. You seem to be carving out a middle way here. Uh, you know, it's it's like so many things. I think that we have a tendency these days to try to get polarized and say, which team are you on? Are you on the, you know, certified organic or real organic or something? Or are you conventional agriculture? Um you know, and 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 I'm I'm sensing you're identifying. You know, sometimes it's a little bit of all these things, or it's it's some middle ground. I'm 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 kind of struggling with it, but it it seems like you defy uh, being put in one corner or the other with the direction you're heading. Yes, we have to, and, and we have to for a number of reasons. So I grew up on a conventional farm in California. 
I went off and got my graduate's degree, came, came back and taught at university, high input intensive agriculture. I believed it, I grew up with it, but I started to see around the world, and I've been to over 98 countries, degradation. All I saw was degradation. I didn't see a future for humanity. So I had to ask questions. How do we, how do, what changes we need to make? And I met Roland Bunch in Honduras in the 80s, and he showed me where they were growing soil an inch a year. And there wasn't a textbook in the world that said that was possible. But that was regeneration. That was building the system. So I kept looking and, and for it, I eventually became CEO of the Rodale Institute, the Organic Research Center, still looking. But that still had too much tillage. And the general agriculture had too much in the way of chemicals and, and toxins and things that released carbon to the atmosphere. So that's where Howard Buffett had funded me to go to Africa because of food security issues to see if I could combine a no outside input. In other words, don't buy anything and because smallholders don't have money and no till. And that was sort of by default an organic thing. But in essence, combined the two and saw tremendous responses. So it taught me the biology works and I had to learn more about the biology. What is this dynamic? And so that's all it is, is how do we support that biology? And Dr. Daly and I, that both had the same trajectory, conventional through organic, saying there's more, there's more. And we said, we've got to be able to talk to the 99% of the farmers who aren't organic. And we can, because we can talk, number one, about economics and dollar return to their pocketbook instead of writing a check to that tractor dealer, to that fuel supplier, to that chemical supplier reducing the level of those input costs dramatically at the same time improving their soil fertility. And they don't have to go organic, but we'll find higher nutrient density because this is what the biology does. And so that's going to be good for everybody. The, the climate's going to be good for everybody. The nutrient density is going to be good for everybody. And that's doesn't even take a, an organic premium. It can be the same price because the farmer now has less expenses. So it's the wave of the future if we have a future. Um, and what will happen is most farmers will end up like Gabe Brown, who to this day has not filed for organic certification because he just doesn't care to spend the money. But he ended mm -hmm. up organic by default just because he, as he says, I'd rather sign the back of the check instead of the front of the check. Why yeah. pay out for something you don't need? And that's that's the bottom line. How do we help the farmer? How do we help the soil? How do we help the climate and how we help food security and the quality of the food? Well, let's let's take a second here and go to the consumer. Obviously, consumers care about having food and they care about having it at hopefully not exorbitant prices. Uh, and they they want to have good nutrition. And you've alluded to that, uh, that this process has an effect on nutrient density. Um, and whether or not you brand what comes off of Blythe or wherever else you're you're working with farmers, um, I'm sure consumers would like that reassurance. So, what does the science show on on the differences between these products uh, that you, you know that that we are improving you know the, the nutrient components in in our in our foods because of these practices. So Dr. Van Fleet at Utah State University is one of the scientists that's actually doing research in the nutrient density work. We've been, we are starting to take samples so we can get the products coming off the farms we're doing trials on to be tested too. 
But Dr. Van Fleet has been showing definitely increases in meat, milk, eggs, and now in vegetables as well. And I believe he's starting to do almonds too. But the point is, is that what we're typically seeing is increases in, yes, maybe proteins or maybe um, certain other elements, minerals, definitely on minerals that we normally see lacking in some modern foods. But here's the important thing. What we're seeing is antioxidant increases in many foods. And a farmer we work with up in Northern California, Scott Park at Meridian Farms, his tomatoes always test higher, particularly in antioxidants. And it's a, a much healthier product to be eating. Uh, and I'll tell you another um, story about nutrient density. And that is, is that Dr. Bob Bielman from Penn State University contacted me earlier last year and sent me an article because he saw the work we were doing in regenerative ag, but about a, a nutrient called ergothionine or ergothionine, depending on how you pronounce it. And he said, it's perhaps one of the most important nutrients we're just not talking about. And it comes from mushrooms, but it is one of the highest antioxidants and highest anti-inflammatories that you can consume. Well, in America, we have a lot of in inflammation issues in our health concerns. Well, he also said, look, if you look at the fungal communities in the work we're doing, the mycorrhizae, as an example, is one of the fungal communities. Plants that are associated with mycorrhizae end up with higher ergothionine as well. So that means, again, let's restore the functioning soil biome. Let's bring those kinds of nutrients back into our food and make us healthier. So if we're going to talk about consumer assurance, that would come into probably some pretty expensive testing because I hate these companies that make claims, make broad claims mm -hmm. and try and sell us on this idea. And that's that I think will be exploited and we should be careful about it. But if you have a farmer's market or you can find somebody truly doing regenerative work, you're going to probably be in much better stead than if you're not. And, and that's one step. The next is demand. Demand it. Start to ask for it. There mm -hmm. will be technology coming forward that will be able to measure it in the future less expensively. And we could start to demand that kind of labeling instead of calories and protein and salt and that sort of thing. What about these antioxidants? What about these anti-inflammatories? That's going to give us longer life and better health. You know, I think it's, it is it is kind of a tricky area. And I think the directions you've outlined are really important. The one thing I always point out, though, for an awful lot of people, uh, it's they have to first make the decision that they're going to eat more broccoli and less Doritos. And and they're not going to need to lose sleep over the fact whether the broccoli they had was actually optimized. It's just so much better, no matter what, than the other choices that are making them sick. <laughs> Affirmed. I completely agree. I completely agree. Fruits and vegetables, we've got to increase that in our diets. There's no question. Um, that's for sure. Uh, but in essence, we do know that the nutrient levels in those items have declined and you know, Roger, if you ever buy a dozen eggs that are pasture raised mm -hmm. and you open them up and crack that egg and look at that yolk next to a conventionally raised egg, the color difference is striking. I do Dark it all the time. Versus light yellow. What is that? That's carotene. What is that? That comes from this whole nutrient flow 
the way animals actually evolved on grass, actually evolved on these plants that have been raised in complex systems. Back to the complexity. The pasture is not just one species of grass. It has all these different plants. For chickens, it has insects too. You know, they eat those as well. But the point is, is the nutrient density is much higher in that yep. food. Absolutely. Cindy Daly has data on milk because she has pasture-based dairy cows up there. The health of that milk is established. She's got the data sitting on her table. Uh It's clear. Um, And then Van Fleet's showing this in meat, et cetera, with Gabe Brown's products that is just distinctly higher. So, yes, you're right. And, yes, the packaged processed foods are killing us, literally. There is no question. And the sugar-based foods are killing us. And yes, we need to get to whole foods. We need to get to vet more vegetables and fruits in our diets. And out of the fast food restaurants, let's stay away from them when we can. A lot of people without economic reach have trouble doing that because that ends up being a lot of time the cheapest so-called food they can access. So we have sort of a food justice question in that in that conversation as well. You know, it's it's such a, an important area, and the the thing now is that um, I think one of the one of the biggest trends I'm paying attention to uh, is health span, not necessarily just lifespan, mm-hmm. um, because you may not be able to live forever, but as long as you live, you'd like to be as healthy as you can be up until the, the day that you die, and and to accomplish that, I get back to being picky about things like whether or not your eggs have orange yolks or not when you were talking about some of what they have to offer it's uh contributes a lot to uh to brain health and to eye health and that's where that's where you get it people are paying attention to that sort of thing and and, and as they should absolutely let's go back to the farm so we've gone on past all these things that are going on give us an example of coming into the farm, like perhaps like you're doing down in Blythe, what is it that you do? I mean, you size it up, obviously, and say, well, here's the way we stand. Here's what's been happening here. Uh, after you've diagnosed where they are currently, tell me those practices and what results you're getting from them, the changes that you're making there. Well, you know, we had we had a farmer that that was willing to try. And why was he willing to try? He was willing to try because after 30 years, he said their yields had been declining. Mm-hmm. Um, they keep putting in more inputs. He said, we're really good farmers. They are. They're beautiful farmers and they do a, a great job according to the way they were trained um, and the way the agronomist taught them and the way the salesman encouraged them. But he said, at the end of the year, we made lots of money. And by the time we finished paying our fertilizer bills, our chemical bills, our uh tractor new tractor or equipment repair bills or fuel bills said we got everybody paid but we had no money left and so that's a motivation how do you get money into your pocket so you can you know actually create a future for your own family and so he was motivated so we set aside three fields where we did side-by-side trials and said okay let's do the conventional and let's try this cover cropping no-till system so it's sort of taking a, a, a field out of one cropping cycle at least or two. We actually did it for over a year because he was willing to go that long and see what would happen. And um, let's just invest back in the soil, cover crop, cover crop, cover crop, then let's go back into farming. Um, that 
changed his life and changed his process. He's already converted 4,000 of his 12,000 acres all on his own because he saw the results. We now have a trial going with him and Metropolitan Water District is gonna join us. And we're looking for a few other partners. Actually, Megafood has joined us in helping fund part of this. Where well, we're setting aside um, two fields, about 40 acres each. One is being farmed conventionally and we've put a flux tower which is more proper term is an eddy covariant tower in that field. And then we have a regenerative field where we're doing a cover crop and then a couple of cash crops. And we put this flux tower, eddy covariant tower in that field too. And just in the first four months, the amount of carbon that shows up in those graphs on the regenerative field is strikingly more than the conventional fields, which means he's getting fertility return. We're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and putting it back in the soil just the way the earth did millions and millions of years ago, just the way it took us down from 4,000 parts per million to 280. So he's seeing the results. We'll have the data. We need to do this, we believe, on four other farms across the country in different soils, different weathers, different crops to prove to the scientific community and policymakers how robust a functioning soil actually is. and. Uh, this also he's actually started to invest some money himself in the irrigation system to those fields because we're putting in a rubicon measurement system that will allow us to measure almost down to the teaspoon how much water goes into each field so now we can compare water use efficiency in the two systems as well the evapotranspiration but how much water goes in how much comes out on the tail end and, and is returned to the river and in doing that, we can start to help Metropolitan Water District and farmers think in terms of when we go back to drought years, which the Colorado River is still suffering, um, whereas we in California are not directly suffering that now, this year, uh, we end up having some data that will help inform us as to how helpful regenerative agriculture can be in this in that equation as well. Hmm. It, it's just uh, uh, amazing. So if we go to the farm, let me ask you a silly question, maybe. What about the atmosphere? Does is it, this these practices have any impact on the like the ratio of carbon dioxide to oxygen, you know, in in the atmosphere? Is the air different there, I guess, than somewhere that's not doing all these things? Well, one of the things that will be different is it'll be slight, but if we can get all of those fallowed acres and all of that bare ground turned into green, we'll start to cool the area down slightly. The CO2 level differences will probably not breathe differently or feel that much differently in it. That's what we're measuring with those towers is actual carbon dioxide. And the reason it's called eddy covariance, if we could see those molecules in the air, they sort of spin and turn in eddies like in a river the flows of eddies and it will pick up how much is being photosynthesized by the plants converted to sugars and carbohydrates and sent down into the soil to feed that biology versus how much carbon dioxide is being released by the soil from the bacteria that consume organic matter and re-release it to the atmosphere. And this is the advantage particularly when you get fungal dominant world below ground is we start holding a lot more carbon below ground. And it stays there. So that's the beauty of climate, fixing the climate problem. Uh, is as we reduce our carbon uh, emissions, we could actually start to draw down um, 
the amount of CO2. I just think about it because I just saw a video by Paul Hawken recently who published that book, Drawdown, where he brought all those scientists together. And they list like eight of the top 20 or so of the solutions are agricultural. And I used to argue with Paul a little bit, it's not enough, we can do more. In a conversation with him recently, he's going down this fungal line too. He's seeing what we're researching is crucial and it holds more potential than what even his book talks about. You know, one thing that's happened in California, because we've had a drought, which many of us are hoping starting to break because we are getting close to filling up a number of important reservoirs and, and so forth. But we still have this kind of radical changes in temperature and heat, and we've got policies coming in because of the groundwater rules that we've been drawing so much out of out of the aquifers that um, there's much agricultural land that is being totally fallowed. They're just going to set it aside to do nothing. What's the price of doing nothing? You're not, uh, you know, you're you're not in there farming. What impact does that have if we end up having, you know, a couple million acres or something, or some crazy number over the entire state or the entire west west that will be in this condition? What so effect if, does that have? If the government follows that, and what a lot of reductionist science would say is, stop putting water on it. That, that's that's an engineering's viewpoint. It's not a biological viewpoint. If we would rather go in and plant a multi-species cover crops when the rains did come, no matter how much we got and got those plants up and got them functioning and dumping carbon back in the soil, those soils would improve. They'd open up. They'd be able to take more water in when the rains did come. It would be better efficiency uh, utilization of the rains as they came in. And what would happen is you would leave the soil covered and so that's either by the cover crop that died or you could roll it down or, or cut it later and just leave it on top of the soil. That's going to cool the valley because if you leave that bare soil, that's going to heat the valley. But put a mulch on it, put a live plant on it, and that'll cool the valley. What we know on these multi-species, it brings pollinators in, it brings insects and bees into the scenario. It increases biodiversity. If we had elk or other animals grazing out there, you know, and not too dense, you could end up adding more biodiversity to the system. So our government likely will fall in the throes of doing what the reduction of sciences tell them to do. Stop, set it aside, don't let anybody in there. And what will happen is we'll degrade it further because we don't have the natural systems, the flow of ruminants moving through the diversity that normally would be growing in those plant scenarios because it's been farmed and a lot of that diversity has been eliminated and it will degrade further, most likely. So I'm sure we'll end up with the wrong policies, Roger. We could do something much more constructive for the climate, for the water cycle, for biodiversity by actually intentionally going in and regenerating that system. And perhaps it goes back to a natural condition, perhaps in the future, if we monitored and managed things differently, we could start to farm part of it again, but not if we just abandon it to set aside. You know, Tim, you made me think of something. You were, you were talking about when ruminants used to roam through there. Well, that, those ruminants had to bust through the fence or jump over it. What if you opened a gate and let ruminants in? What happens when you start putting livestock on some of this land again? If managed well which means, you know, multi-paddock grazing, which means managing it. So you have high impact, high density, 
short time exposure and get them off. So you leave 50% of the biomass. Uh, what happens when an animal bites a plant and breaks it off, the plant is is been stimulated to say, I've been eaten partly, and it shoots those sugars and carbohydrates into the soil. So it puts more carbon into the soil to feed the plant so it can regrow. If you graze it down to the nub, you lose most of the roots below ground and you stop that process. So bad grazing is much worse than no grazing, but grazing in a multi-paddock design, high intensity, short time exposure is the very best. I can show you pictures in the Sonora Desert in Mexico where a farmer just changed the way he grazed and he restored bare landscape to grasses. That's the way that desert used to be. It used to be with grasses. And that's all photosynthesizing, taking carbon out of the air. It's bringing biodiversity back. It's holding water cycles better. He can run more cattle per acre than his neighbor who has bare ground. Tim, you know, as as usual, when I've talked to you, I get myself all excited about this. I don't have a farm personally. I talk to a lot of farmers and consumers and people that share my interest and share the belief that the kind of thing you're talking about is really important. And for them, if they want to know how they can um, you know, keep track of what you're doing with the project or maybe reach you to see if you have suggestions or how they might be able to do something themselves, get engaged in this direction, where do they go? How do they how do they find you or the program and keep track of what you're up to? Well, thank you. We'd be delighted to engage people and and Dr. Daly can use any kind of commitment with regard to donations because we're a completely self-funded center. The state and the federal government does not fund a center on a campus. It's an academic center which is needed. We need the science. But go on our website and there's all kinds of resources on that website for free people can just access. And that's the Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems. That's at California State University, Chico. And if you go on that website, there's multiple pages, multiple resources um, that are available for anyone to stay abreast of what we're doing, to look at past research, to look at farmers that are collaborating with us. There's a whole list of them that people may want to connect with and to also engage us. And our email addresses are there as well. So we'll be happy to respond. I'm going to read that again, just because it's such a long line. Uh, <laughs> so those people that want to yeah. turn on their voice memo on their on their Apple phone or something, or actually if they still have pens at their desk, uh, you might write down Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems. And if you're at Chico State, then they can find Tim LaSalle. And Tim, as always, you've given a lot for us to consider, and I appreciate your taking the time to join us on Farm to Table Talk. Roger, it's been a delight. You know, we can fix this damage we've done, but it'll take a commitment by all of us and a, and a respect for nature and how we can support that living system. And we're learning how more and more every day. Thank you for the time and the opportunity. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.